Do I sound bad? No worse than usual. Cool. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we are back in the Oscar vault once again to break down the best score nominees from 2018, which is a very recent year. Hey, Scott, we're actually going to get this in on time this year. Are you as pumped as I am? After listening to these scores? Well, the first one we're doing is going to pump you up, I think. Let's jump right into it with Black Panther by Ludwig Göransson. Now, we've talked about a lot of these Marvel scores in previous episodes. Did you ever think one of them would get nominated for the Oscar? I mean, they're not even doing the best popular score category yet. (laughs) That would be interesting. What is the popular score? Are there popular scores? Most years, probably the Zimmer ones. He is very popular, including among the Youngs. I don't understand that. So, Black Panther, I think, is a very interesting score. Uh, there, there are a few different uh, components that really drive it. There's the uh, Pan-African style with the big percussion, the big brass fanfares, the vocals for different elements of Wakanda and Tehala. Apparently, uh, Goranson researched Senegalese music for a lot of those sequences, so I'm obviously not qualified to judge whether there's an authentic uh, flavor to it, but it sounds like movie Africa, at least. <laughs> and, and then there's the Killmonger aspect of the score, which has more of the hip-hop influence in the movie. That's where a lot of the uh, original songs come in, one of which also got nominated for the Oscar but also an orchestral motif for Killmonger that I thought was surprisingly similar to James Horner's danger motif. Is that that four-note thing? Yes. That is sometimes part of the Killmonger? See, the Killmonger music... Well, getting back to what you were talking about, in the beginning of the movie, he does sort of like... Not so much themes, but just the feel of the music for each character. All of the Black Panther music just has that African feel to it. And all the Killmonger music has that hip-hop feel to it. And also, the couple of scenes that focus on Dr. Claw, he uses more like electronic, sort of techno-inspired music. Mm. which, Which I thought was really interesting. But that really only happens in like the first third of the score. After that... I mean, obviously the African influences are throughout, but this sort of character-specific delineation of how the tracks are influenced sort of falls away after a point. Well, eventually they come into contact, and there's a lot more combinations of all of the different styles. The only consistent Killmonger music is the, like, bird calls that are used whenever he shows up. 
bird calls. Yeah, you know the Killmonger bird calls. You mean some of the vocals? I'm not remembering a bird call. Are those vocals? I mean, on first blush, they do sort of sound like the New Day. Okay. But there's also, like, a, uh... Apart from that, like, four-note declaration, it sounds very declarative to me, that little piece of music that is used with Killmonger sometimes. But apart from that, there's another, like, sort of descending, very tragic-sounding piece of music that is used a lot of times for Killmonger, but it's also used in a lot of other places, and I don't remember the movie well enough to figure out what it's supposed to signify. I th- You mean the kind of more ethereal-sounding theme? It's used a lot when T'Challa has his vision of his father, T'Chaka. Yeah, I, I think But that... it's also used a lot in Killmonger scenes. Yeah, I think that's associated more with the spirit world in the movie, and... You know, all of the interactions that the spirit world and the ancestors have with the story. But it's not used... The first time it's really featured is the scene where Tahaka kills Killmonger's father. The sort of, like, prologue mm. scene. Yeah. It's sort of used, featured heavily there, and then it's used a lot when Tahala has his vision of Tahaka during the Black Panther ceremony. But then it's also used a lot of times in Killmonger scenes. It's used in conjunction with the bird calls for Killmonger. Well, I think it's used later on when when he has sort of his own interactions with the spirit world and, and kind of moves into that milieu a little more over the course of the movie. And there's a huge, huge version of it at the at the climax of the film, the sunset at the end. Yeah, yeah. Am I wrong for getting a slight James Horner whiff on that theme, too? I didn't get a James Horner feeling from it. It's such a short piece. It's only like seven or eight notes. It's not like a whole elongated theme, even. And it's sort of the same thing, like the piece of music you were just talking about for Killmonger. That's four notes that they use to sort of punctuate some of the Killmonger scenes. Well, it is a a punctuation, and, and it is kind of an interruption. In, in the way that it's used sometimes. Although even with that theme, in, in the track uh, Is This Wakanda, there's a brief major mode variation of that that I found really interesting. I had trouble sort of following a lot of the themes in this. Like, I feel like... I don't know, it could go one of two ways. I feel like either there's a lot more going on in this score than I was able to puzzle out of it the few times I've listened to it, Or it's all just sort of muddled. I did have to listen to it a few times to really get some of the uh, variations. Like, I feel like there are themes being used that I can't follow. Also, there's no, like, main theme. Like, a big superhero theme. There's, like, a sort of a fanfare-ish thing that I'm not sure is supposed to represent Black Panther himself or Wakanda in general. But even that's not really a long theme. It sounds more like the fanfarish intro to a theme than an actual theme itself. And there's another theme that I think might be a Black Panther theme, but it doesn't exist until track like 22 or 23 is the first time it appears on the CD. So, an album which, by the way, is very long. So you'd think you you should be able to track the development of, of things throughout the score. It is an hour and a half soundtrack album. I feel like I need a roadmap. Like, I feel like I want another 20 minutes of the CD just so there's like a three-minute Black Panther's theme suite and a three-minute Killmonger suite and a three-minute Wakanda suite just to educate me on what to listen for in the rest of the CD because I feel like... Like I said, either there's a lot more there that I'm missing, or it's just all sort of jumbled, and I can't figure it out. Like, my main takeaway from this score is that I want to like it a lot more than I do. And I'm not 100% sure if that's my fault or the score's fault. Like, usually it's really easy to tell, no, this just sucks. But I don't think this just sucks. But I can't say it's that great. I don't know. This 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 score perplexes me. I found this score very easy to listen to. If you know what I mean. 
you know, as opposed to, frankly, a, a few scores we've done on these shows, you know, it's engaging, it moves, there's interesting content. I just think it's it's easy to listen to. It is definitely out of this year's crop of nominees. Well, we'll get to the overall assessment of all the nominees in a little bit. By the way, if anyone would like to listen along with us, the commercial albums for all the nominees ought to be on Spotify or any sort of retail platform. And Oscar promos for some of them should be on the websites for the individual production companies. There's our plug for Spotify. (laughs) Spotify is not sponsoring our show. Spotify. Not a sponsor of this show. Well, then fuck Spotify. Yeah, but I'm not sure we can just tell people to look it up on YouTube. I mean, we could. Although, you know, Walt Disney Records puts a lot of these scores up on YouTube. If they didn't <laughs> want people to listen to it on YouTube, they wouldn't put it up on YouTube. Yeah, they. I haven't looked specifically for Black Panther, but Walt Disney Records has put up a bunch of their albums on YouTube because I guess they figure they're not getting any revenue, barely, from iTunes or Spotify or any other brand name. So... Might as well get YouTube ad revenue, I guess? Yeah, may as well get those sweet, sweet AdSense dollars. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I think Disney is a large enough corporation that they may actually successfully be able to navigate the YouTube content ID system. Yeah, they could could call up the Googs and get it done. Oh man, I remember the days of albums coming out and people making huge YouTube videos for the entire album, except they had to put, like, six minutes of silence between each track so that the label wouldn't be able to search for the waveform of the album. And they'd have to, like, change the pitch slightly so they couldn't search for the waveform of individual tracks. Mm. They still do that, or does every label just put all their stuff on YouTube now? I don't know. There's so much stuff on YouTube. Except the new Nine Inch Nails album, which is only available on fucking vinyl. But whatever. I thought Nine Inch Nails puts all their stuff up for free to download on the website. Oh, they did that for a couple albums in the mid to late 2000s, but that whole fad died real quick. Except for the people who put all their stuff on YouTube, I guess. YouTube. Not a sponsor of this show. Here's an album, Pay What You Want, died quickly in favor of, hey, hipsters who are willing to pay $100 for a piece of fucking vinyl, you give me all your money? Literally, yes. Make those dollars. Sure. Speaking of which, this movie made a billion damn dollars. This movie made a billion damn dollars. Yes, it did. I mean, all the Marvel movies make a billion damn dollars, but this one was actually pretty good. But was its score... I thought the score was pretty good. Especially for a score in 2018. You want to talk about another score from 2018? If you think we're finished plumbing the depths of Black Panther. Hoo boy. Let's move on now to our next nominee, If Beale Street Could Talk by Nicholas Bertel. about this score, I found that it was originally going to be all brass. Like, it was just going to be a brass ensemble, which you can hear in a couple of tracks on the album. Uh, But after plugging some of those early tracks into the film, Nicholas Bertel and and the director decided uh, that they needed some more varied tones. And so we have more of a standard orchestration for a lot of this score. So I was going to say, a lot of the tracks, those main tracks are just sort of really heavy strings, aren't they? There are a lot of heavy strings in this, yes. 
that was part of a process where uh, Bertel didn't want to reflect the jazz that they were using for diegetic music in the movie, and so he wanted to go for a different tone from that, so he arrived at something with some pieces of the same feelings, but a little slower, a little more melancholy, a little more focused on the strings. Well, he accomplished that. The main piece of music, well, I don't know about the main, there's a couple of pieces of music they repeat throughout this score, but the... The one that jumps out at me is, I think, best described as a funeral dirge. Like, it's very slow and very heavy and very dreary. And it's repeated several times. Well, you know, this is a love story. But the music reflects more of the struggle and the sadness and the perseverance that that story goes through more than any other aspect of a love story that you would traditionally see in a traditional film score. I saw Bertel describe it in an interview as carrying sadness and perseverance and kind of an alchemical balance, which may be overstating it a bit, but there's, there's still that combination of emotions. There's three main pieces of music that are repeated in this score. One of them is that string funeral dirge. The other one sounds like it might be a more up-tempo version of that same tune, except played on a xylophone. And the third sounds like the intro to Ecstasy of Gold. Like, every ten seconds it sounds like it's about to swing into Ecstasy of Gold. <laughs> Did this score break you? Or are you just looking for shades of better scores? You didn't get that impression from that track? I don't recall the track that you're talking about. I'm oh, sorry. God, well, Do we have to stop the a, podcast now? Hey, it's repeated like two or three times, as every piece of music is in this score. Oh, gee, oh. I did this. I made this. This doesn't sound like it's about to swing into Ecstasy of Gold about every ten seconds. Tell me that doesn't sound like an intro to Ecstasy of Gold. Okay, when you put it that way. <laughs> when you literally use it as a literal intro to literally the Ecstasy of Gold. Yeah, sure. You can't just say that like any piece of music would work there. Like the Killmonger Bird Calls wouldn't have worked as an intro to Ecstasy of Gold. Well, I don't the funeral know. dirge wouldn't work as an intro to Ecstasy of Gold. Well, I don't know. I, w I want you to—I want you to insert into the show now the uh, Killmonger danger motif into the Ecstasy of Gold. <laughs> See, that's not as obvious a marriage, now is it? Okay, fine. <laughs> that was my first reaction to that track. Every ten seconds, it sounds like it's about to swing into Ecstasy of Gold. So those are the, those are the three pieces of music that are repeated in this score. The Funeral Dirge might be the same tune as the Funeral Dirge played up-tempo on a xylophone, and sounds like it's about to swing into Ecstasy of Gold every ten seconds. And then there's, like, other incidental music to fill out the running time or whatever. We talked about Nicholas Bertel a couple of years ago when he was nominated for Moonlight. And I think the thing that Beale Street really has in common with Moonlight is that it's pretty understated. It's mood music. It's not really asserting itself all that often. You know what I actually did just as an experiment? Uh, you plugged the Ecstasy of Gold into a track from the score? 
I didn't do that as an experiment. I did that as a proof of concept. Oh, okay. After I finished listening to this, I went back and I listened to every track. I listened to the entire CD at double speed. Oh, Jesus, you and double speed. You're doing this with music now? Because the whole thing was just so slow and dreary. It, it's it's very slow, yes. And I was like, what would this sound like if it was more up-tempo? If it was like, what would this sound like if it wasn't just so astonishingly dreary and boring? If it had a beat. What if Beale Street but trip-hop? I actually named the directory... If Beale Street could fucking move! See, I thought I thought it was going to be if Beale Street could funk. So I took the whole CD and ripped it into an audio editor and made every track double speed. And do you know what I found out? Just giving something a tempo doesn't make it interesting or engaging. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't as much of a chore to listen to. But it still wasn't anything interesting or engaging. I mean, there are lots of scores that are made up almost entirely of anonymous string ostinati. They have a beat. They have a rhythm. This score actually has tunes and melodies. It's just that they're all really slow and boring and dreary. And so when you take away the slow part, it's still kind of boring. Are you going to plug some of that in here now? Do you want me to? I'm almost interested as a proof of concept myself. You want to play a double speed funeral dirge? Oh, jeez. pretty slow, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think it might sound better at three or four times speed? Uh, I'm not sure it would still sound like music at that point. <laughs> I'm sorry I mentioned the definition of music. Let's not. Please, please no, please no, please no. It starts to degrade because, like, in the increased speed, you can hear each stroke of the violin bow a exactly. lot more easily. Exactly, yeah. That turns it into, like, a tremulo violin, I think is the term. So, so it does start to degrade at the higher speeds? Well, I guess that's why traditionally orchestral music is played at 1x. (laughs) There's some controversy about that, actually. Oh, about classical music, I know, because it's hard to tell exact tempo signatures. Yeah, there's a lot of people that say classical music should really be played at, like, 150 to 200% the tempo of what we're used to hearing it at. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've heard a couple examples of what that does to some pieces, and it's really interesting. Hmm. I mean, at the other end of the spectrum, there's that uh, performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony that goes on for an entire week or whatever, because they're playing it at like a thousand times slow. Well, that's sort of like an internet meme, you know? This track, but at one and a half times tempo. And those those very, very often sound really good. We've veered extremely off-topic again, so let's move on to another score, shall we? Let's talk about Black Klansman by Terence Blanchard.
Terrence Blanchard is a jazz trumpeter and the artistic director of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz and artistic director of the Henry Mancini Institute at the University of Miami. He's also scored the last 19 Spike Lee movies. Okay. Everyone from Jungle Fever onward. This is his first Oscar nomination. Well, I didn't know Spike Lee made 19 movies in the last 25 years, but here we are. Doesn't surprise me. I will admit, I've never particularly vibed with jazz scores. Uh, They have been a distinct genre of film music for literal decades, but it's not really a style that I connect to easily. I mean, it fits the vibe of the movie, though. Yeah, sure. The, the jazz elements, the funk guitar for, for kind of a period vibe. Yeah. There are a couple of thematic ideas that run through the score, but I get the impression they're not particularly the point. Well, there's two themes that are... Well, I mean, there's a couple of tracks on the CD called X Theme, but some of them don't come until very late in the, in the score. There's two main themes in the score. One of them is called Main Theme, and the other one is Ron's Theme. To this day, I have no idea what the main theme is. I've listened to it several times, and I've listened to this entire score straight through twice. I have no earthly idea what the main theme is. If I have listened to it more than ten seconds ago, I've forgotten it. Ron's theme is instantly stands out, easily recognizable, and it's throughout the score, and I actually kind of like it. I don't know why it's not the main theme, and I don't know what the hell the main theme is, because it's been more than ten seconds since I last listened to the track called Main Theme. Yeah, we kind of have an issue with the more ephemeral music when when we're doing these, don't we? I'm not a very ephemeral guy. (laughs) No, I know, you are very ephemeral. Much like my favorite artery, I am very ephemeral. What was it like when you broke your leg? Well, it was very femoral. What, what's, what sort of music would Nicholas Patel write for the movie where I break my leg? A femoral dirge. Waka waka waka. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> what are we even doing? What is this show? We are struggling to find a way to entertain ourselves while talking about the 2018 score nominees. Oh my god. I feel like we've done too many of these in a row. We need to space these out better. Too many of I mean, I can give people a peek into our recording schedule. We've done two of these in a row. No, because we did the 2017 show. We recorded that in October. But still a fairly short period of time. Oh, for us, maybe it is. <laughs> for our usual recording schedule. Yeah, as, 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 yes. As opposed to so many other people on the Place to Be network of podcasts who do every week. Used to do twice weekly. Anyway, Black Klansman by Terrence Blanchard. (laughs) The second half of this score is so much better than the first half. Fair. It's such a stark, stark contrast. Well, I think the drama of it kicks in a little more. And there's a little more of uh, Ron's theme, as you mentioned. That's, if I remember correctly, the one that's on that uh, funk guitar in, in a lot of tracks. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. I just... I I do find it rather ephemeral. Like, honestly, it's not bad. It's fine music. Once we finish this podcast, I will not think of it again. I mean, I can say that for at least four out of five of the ones we're talking about today, but... I don't know, it really does pick up towards the end. Sure. I mean, the first half of this CD is nothing. And then, like, the third quarter of this CD is sort of starting to get better... But the last two tracks on this score are actually legitimately good. It's sort of an asymptote of quality. Actually, in terms of the soundtrack album, I think the very last track is from a different Blanchard score for a different Spike Lee movie that they tracked in to the end of Black Klansman over the uh, Charlottesville 2017 footage. Really? Yeah. I should have put it in my notes. I don't remember what movie that was from. That makes sense, because 
because it doesn't have much to do with the melodic material of the rest of the score? Well, this shows you how much of an impact the melodic material of the rest of the score had on me. My first note of track 23 is, oh wow, it's an evolution of the theme. (laughs) Which I guess is just, no, it's a different theme from the same composer working for the same director, so it sounds like the same melodic family. Mm. So... I feel very different now about about saying that the last two tracks are the far and away the best stuff on the CD when one of them isn't from this film. Isn't well, that a disqualifier of these fucking Academy people? If they feel like it is, but it's one piece, so just one piece isn't going to be an automatic disqualification. So I guess when I have to pick out something to use for the one minute display piece of what this theme is, I shouldn't use track 23. I mean, you could. (laughs) Speaking of music that's from a movie that's not Black Klansman, let's talk about Isle of Dogs by Alexandre Desplat. I think if we want to do more of these for the sake of your mental health, I probably shouldn't make you listen to more Desplat scores. Except whatever he gets nominated for next year, I guess. You know what? What? Desplat is far and away not the worst of these. Okay. Zimmer. Well, Nicholas Bertel is rapidly acquiring a reputation. Oh, jeez. I mean, I can't say that I've ever really liked a Desplat score much at all, but he's far and away not the worst of these composers that keep getting nominated. I mean, my favorite Desplat score is probably his Twilight score, and I don't think we're doing that year at any point. I haven't heard that. It has a really, really good main theme. The Twilight movies have, like, surprisingly good scores. Probably my least disliked Desplat score is probably Shape of Water. Although that suffers from the same problem that Isle of Dogs suffers from, in that he doesn't really, like, use the theme in different forms to do different things. He just sort of repeats the theme whenever he feels like sticking it in there. Like, it's not like, here's the action version of the Shape of Water theme, or here's the tension version of the Shape of Water theme. Whenever he wants to do action or tension, he uses completely unrelated music, and then, like, a few scenes later, oh, here's a place where I can just track the theme again. And he does sort of the same thing in Isle of Dogs. I haven't seen Isle of Dogs, so I can't judge it the way I can Shape of Water, but a lot of the musical pieces that are recognizable and repeated are not like, here's the same melody reworked to do something, it's just, here's the same melody. The style of this score was 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 interesting because it was pretty atypical for Desplat. The vocals in particular, I think, really stood out to you, too. Well, the vocals... The first time I heard the vocals, I thought it was like Mongolian throat singing. (laughs) And on second listen, it's not throat singing. It's just this really super bassy, super rumbly singing. But it is definitely different. And as much as it's maybe a little lightweight and maybe a little disposable... I think that theme, at least, is fun enough while you're listening to it. I keep coming back to the word ephemeral with all of these scores. You know, it's fun enough when you're listening to it, I will never think of it again. I kind of like that track. My problem is I can't say I like that theme, because I'm not sure that theme is used other than that track. 
I mean, it's reused, it's on more tracks, but it's not any different. Okay. It's not like themes in other movies where you're like, okay, I really like the way they use the theme here, and then I, I, I like the sad version here, and I like the action-punchy version here, and I like the serious version here, and I like the bold, heroic version here. In this instance, it's just, this is the theme, this is how it is, and when it's reused three tracks later, and then reused again five tracks after that, and then reused again five tracks after that, it doesn't sound any different. Yeah, the variations in the music for... Isle of Dogs, at least on album, uh, come more from uh, songs and other pieces by other artists that are included. Like, if I were to put together a compilation of just, like, tracks I like, because I like the theme and I like the way it's used and it sounds cool, you know, if I was doing that from, like, a Star Wars score or a Giacchino score... You know, I might pick out, like, three, four, five, eight tracks from one score, because, like, you know, I really like the way this is shaded here, and I like the way this is reworked here. For this CD, it would only ever be one track, because what's the point of having more of them? If you like, if you want to hear it more, just on cue that one track again. <laughs> Let's move on now to Mary Poppins Returns, with score by Mark Shaman. is Mark Shaman's chance at the EGOT. Really? He's been nominated for Oscars before, but he's never won one, so I guess everyone is his chance at the EGOT. Uh, along with Scott Whitman, who collaborated with Shaman on the songs and has been his collaborator on a bunch of musicals over the last 15 years, ever since Hairspray, uh, the success of which on Broadway is basically the reason why Shaman doesn't do as many movies as he did in the 90s. Uh, as part of his EGOT, uh, he actually got his Emmy for the 1992 Oscar broadcast. Really? Yes. I guess he was Stickman that year, or something. I didn't realize they wrote original music for the Oscars. Because I've been desperately looking for any piece of music associated with the Oscars that we could use in these goddamn Oscar shows. <laughs> and the only thing that I came up with is that they sometimes use Hooray for Hollywood as the end credits, and, and sometimes also a suite of Academy Award-winning score snippets. But, like, we don't have anything better to intro these scores with than the most celebratory, honorary sort of track we can come up with, which is the WWE Hall of Fame theme. I desperately was looking for music that signified the Academy Awards, and I found nothing! The closest I found is Billy Crystal's Jokey Song! And you're telling me he won an Emmy for original music written for an Oscar broadcast? Uh, probably for being the musical director of the Oscar broadcast. You know, arranging the orchestra, arranging all of the uh, snippets of the themes for all the different movies that they that they play while people are coming out or going up to get their awards. Is that an Emmy category? Best Musical Director of an Awards Show? Uh, isn't that the Emmy that Lin-Manuel Miranda won for the Tonys? I have no earthly idea. Remember when he got the Best Song nomination for Moana, we were saying if he won for that, he would just cruise to his EGOT, because he obviously won Tonys, and then he won an Emmy for producing the Tonys? I don't know how awards work. Yeah, there are all sorts of, of Emmy categories for awards shows. <laughs> it's crazy! We haven't even started talking about the score and we're already on a big digression. <laughs> well, can I tell you my primary complaint about this score? 
Sock it to me. The very first impression I had of this score is very negative because it got nominated at all. This score was not disqualified because it was based largely around music from a pre-existing work, namely Mary Poppins. That immediately put me off on the wrong foot. Well, it's not like they have entire songs from Mary Poppins in there. Although, that's what I'm saying! They didn't use material from Mary Poppins in the fucking Mary Poppins movie! How is this original enough to be worthy of a nomination? They didn't even nominate Two Towers! But they're nominating this movie because it has nothing from the other Mary Poppins movie! That's a problem! That's an indictment! They do actually use some material from Mary Poppins 1. I, I still... I can't believe there's a Mary Poppins 2, but here we are. <laughs> the year is 2019, and there's a Mary Poppins 2. Your argument is invalid. Just wait until they make Mary Poppins 4 the revenge. So there are quotes of a couple of things from Mary Poppins 1. You know, there are a couple direct quotes of A Spoonful of Sugar right at the beginning of the overture to Mary Poppins 2. And Mary's theme... Uh, throughout the score is taken from the song uh, Can You Imagine That from this movie, but the way that it's used throughout the score sounds like the chorus of Spoonful of Sugar to me. I noticed one part of one track that I thought might be quoting a, a tune from Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. But that was like the only tenuous connection I noticed. And in one of the songs, I think there was a quote or two of uh, Go Fly a Kite, but... Well, I didn't listen to the songs, because we're evaluating the original scores. I didn't listen to the songs at all. I mean, I've listened to the one that got nominated. And I heard the Lin-Manuel Miranda one. God, that's a trip. Let's say you're lost in a park shore. You can give in to the dark Or you can trip a little light Fantastic with me When you're alone in your room Your choices just embrace the gloom Or you can trip a little light Fantastic with me For if you hide under the covers You might never see the day but if a spark can start inside your heart Then you can always find the way So when life is getting dreary Just pretend that you're a leery As you trip a little life Fantastic with me What's a leery? Why, it's what we lamp Yeah, do you think Lin-Manuel Miranda had a uh, an accent coach To duplicate Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent? The best comment on the Lin-Manuel Miranda song that I heard was from Anne Hornaday, who's a film critic for the Washington Post, and she has a podcast where she reviews films, and she was talking about his performance in this film in general, and she said, Lin-Manuel Miranda's genius is his genius. It's not his singing. Oh, that's harsh. But accurate. <sighs> that's harsh. But accurate. <laughs> I didn't I didn't think his singing was was that bad really. It's okay. But yeah. I mean, he was the worst performer in Hamilton. Real is that a hot take? Is that a hot take? Well, what did you you've heard it? What do you think? Or have you still not heard Hamilton? Are you the only person in America that hasn't heard the Hamilton soundtrack? I am the only person left in these United States who has not listened to Hamilton because I was determined to see the show and I let my one chance slip through my fingers because the tickets were like $150 and I decided I can wait six months, it'll be cheaper. And I let it go right through my fingers. And then six months after that, you know how much the tickets cost? Like, $2,000. Six months after that, they were 5000 Yeah, well, I let, I let it slip right through my fingers. 
early in the in the Broadway run before it really really blew up because I thought it was going to ebb and and it would be cheaper in a few months. So I absolutely failed on that score, and so ever since then. Well, you just shun it out of spite? <laughs> oh, or shame. So yes, I am the one person left in life who has not listened to Hamilton. I've heard the one song that he performed for Barack Obama. Which was awesome. Do you want a real Hamilton hot take? Oh, uh, give... Sock it to me. I prefer that song in the version he did at the White House in 2009 to the version that's in the play. I think I do too. I haven't seen the play, but I listened to that one because I had already heard it. I mean, everything else in that play is awesome, but that one particular song, I liked the one-man version of it better than the whole, like... Oh, with the chorus at Let's the end introduce and... all the characters and have 40 people sing it. I like the one he did at the White House better. Uh, a little too musical for you, I suppose? I guess, that, yeah. Because that is a very, very consistent thing in musicals. You know, you have the big opening number that introduces all the characters and how they relate to each other in broad strokes. Uh-huh. I like the one-man concept album version of that track better than the Broadway spectacular version of that track. So speaking of musicals, what did you think, in general, of the Mary Poppins Returns score? I thought it was fine. I mean, like I said, I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't majorly built around existing Mary Poppins music, because I thought that would just sort of... I don't know. I like when sequel scores have strong connections to the original score. That's just... I like... I like series of movies... Serieses? I like serii of movies to have, like, consistent musical feels. That's why I like shit like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, where it just it sounds the same throughout and just builds on itself. That's really good. And so, just from that perspective, you know, I wanted this movie to be full of recognizable Mary Poppins tunes, which it's not. It's full of its own tunes, which are fine and sound fine and sound like they could come out of the same milieu as the original Mary Poppins tunes. And so it's all just fine, but it's nothing that really grabs my attention or interest in any major way. It's all just sort of fine. Yeah, it does come more out of the same milieu, and, and it has that sort of glossy, bright feel to it. Even in, in the, like chase sequence. There's a chase sequence in Mary Poppins 2. Tell that to someone five years ago. You want to know my, my 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 sort of main reaction to that? I think the note that I made on that track was, I guess this is what passes for action music in this score. Well, it's what passes for action music in a, in a bright, happy musical. Yeah. yeah, in a bright, happy Disney children's musical movie. Well, that's that's what it is. This sounds like a bright, happy children's Disney musical. Which is fine, but it's nothing spectacular. It's nothing that stands out. It's nothing that demands attention. It's just fine for what it is supposed to be. I suppose. Although, just given the feel of it and the energy of it, there's a ton of energy all through this music. It, it kind of makes me really miss Mark Shaman. Like, I really wish he would do more movies. I mean, some of his stuff from the 90s was great. His Adams Family scores and City Slickers and The American President and all that stuff. I mean, I understand most of his success is on Broadway, so who can blame him? But selfishly, I just wish he would do more movies. Or, there would be, or that there would be more movies that would require his sort of sensibilities. Rather than Nicholas Bertel's Maybe. <laughs> He'll do the Beale Street musical in a couple of years. So, having taken this whirlwind tour through the five nominees for Best Original Score from the year 2018, which of these would you say is your favorite? What do you think is going to win and what do you think should win? I would have to say none of these really jumps out at me as, like... Like, usually, even in years filled with Desplat and Zimmer and whatever, there's usually, like, one or two scores that jumps out as, like, this is the good one. None of these really does that to me. 
there are some that are better than others. There are some I, there are some that I really don't like, and some that I kind of like. But there's nothing here that really jumps out at me as this is the good one, or th- this is one that I'm going to be listening to in five years. I'm still going to be listening to tracks from this score just because I like them. I don't think there's anything in this year's crop of nominees that's like that. If I had to pick a winner, I think I would probably go with Black Panther. I think that was the most well-rounded of them. I think that one had the most going on. It had the most interesting stuff in it, even if it never quite gelled for me. As for which one will win, who, who the fuck knows? Well, as for what will win, I mean, Mary Poppins and Black Panther are both nominated for score and song, so I think one of them will win one, and the other one will win the other, and I don't know which will be which. Oh, really? You don't think Despois is going to win this? I don't think Despois. Or, or the uh, Black Klansman? Sometimes the Academy views these things as, like, a Lifetime Achievement Award, almost, so if they want to give it to Terrence Blanchard, finally, I suppose there's a case for that, but... I think there's a case. You can make a case for any of these. I mean, they seem to fucking love Despois. And you just said this is the 19th Spike Lee movie this guy has done, and it seems that Spike Lee is going to get the director award as a lifetime achievement, probably. Maybe. So maybe they'll give it to the score as well. You know, the Mary Poppins thing is fine and fun in places. Beale Street seems like the kind of thing they've been awarding lately. You know, you can make a case for any one of these. And of course, there's always the uh, consolation prize line of thinking, because Black Panther ain't going to win Best Picture. So, you know, th- that that's something that people have read into the Best Score Award several times. That it's one of the lesser awards they just give to something that's not going to win the big ones. Well, normally the lesser awards they give to something that's not going to win Best Picture is Best Director or Best Screenplay. (laughs) But they didn't deign to nominate Black Panther for Best Director or Best Screenplay, so here we are. Yeah, that's always a strange dynamic where, like, you almost don't want to see the same movies nominated for every award, but if something is one of the best pictures of the year, it probably had a good screenplay and, and direction. And acting, and music, and, you know... Yeah, so so there's... The reason it is the best picture is because it had the best direction, and the best acting, and the best screenplay, and the best music. Yeah, so there's there's a certain logic either way. And as for my favorite, I think it's definitely Black Panther. Um, I was, you know, even more positive on that than, than you were, so... That'll wrap up our discussion of the five nominees for Best Original Score for 2018. We will take a quick break and come back with what might be a shorter second segment than usual. They've been getting shorter as we've done this. Uh, We will see you when we come back. consideration paid for by the following. PlaySweet Nation is Justin Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySweetNation.com, and we now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaySweetNation Wrestling feed, we bring you the mothership, the place to be podcast, main event, survey says, Wrestling Warzone, a Monday Night Wars podcast retrospective, No Holds Barred, Jeff Learns Wrestling, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows. On top of that, we're also dipping into the vault, re-releasing the entire catalog of where the big boys play for your enjoyment. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation pop feed is loaded with great content, offering such tremendous shows covering the land of pop culture, such as Geek and Sassy, Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, 
Sunday Groove, PTB in Play, Freak Out Drive-In, Songs with Friends, Looking Forward, Looking Back, and Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Conversation Comics, DC Post-Crisis Management, Marvel Age, and Marvel Age Masterclass, plus weekly pod blasts that cover the gamut of comic topics. The feed is also filled with insightful sports content, including the NBA team, This Week in the NFL, and more. And you can find all these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available at PlayStation.com. We cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlayStation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlayStation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Do you ever lie awake at night? Just between the dark and the morning light Searching for the things you used to know Looking for the place where the lost things go Do you ever dream or reminisce Wondering where to find what you truly miss Maybe all those things that you love so Are waiting in the place where the lost things go Memories you've shared And we are back talking about film music from the year 2018. Scott, do you have any non-nominated scores that you would like to talk about? You know what? I don't really. Yeah, fair. I, I I mentioned this earlier. I think maybe we've done too many of these in a row. I think maybe I'm just all scored out. Like, we listened to all those 2017 scores, and then we did all those scores for 2000, and we listen to a lot more than just the nominees now. Or we listen to a lot more than just the ones we talk about on the show. Because we now do this whole second segment of other good scores, I want to listen to a wide selection of other scores from the year to see what's good. And so, you know, if we talk about the five nominees and then maybe six other scores, well, I've probably listened to 10 or 15 scores to try to find those five. And so I listened to all the scores we had to for the last two episodes and then and then listened to all the 2018 scores, trying to find the good ones. And we tried to get a jump on this episode, so we were listening to stuff before the nominees came out, so we listened to stuff we thought would get nominated that didn't. Good God, man, I had to listen to First Man. (laughs) So I've listened to like 12 or 15 2018 scores, and I can honestly say none of them really, I thought, were really good. There are some that were okay, there were some that weren't terrible. None of them are ones that I really would want to put forward and say, this is good, you should listen to this. None of them reached that level for me. Yeah, probably the most entertaining score of 2018 is one that we couldn't have talked about in this episode because we talked about it when the movie came out, uh, which would be Solo. which was accidentally not submitted for nomination for the Academy Awards. Not like it would have been nominated anyway. I honestly forgot about Solo, because you're right, we already talked about it, and so I didn't include it in my sort of sweep of 2018 scores to listen to. Exactly. Yeah, you're right, that would probably be the best thing that came out this year, in my opinion. Yeah, it was still kind of a shame that uh, some intern at Disney, or whatever, or maybe some middle manager at Disney forgot to submit a form and so it didn't get submitted to 
to the Academy for nomination. Because at least there would have been a promo on the website, so there might have been some extra music in there. You really think it would have gotten a nomination, though? No, it wouldn't have gotten nominated. I mean... But it would have been, you know, there might have been some extra music on the website. I mean, unless you've got John Williams' name on it, or your movie makes a billion dollars and everyone's looking at you askance about how can you not nominate this... They don't nominate scores like that for movies like that. It's not best popular score, as as noted. <laughs> Otherwise, I guess there were a couple of scores that were better than average. Ready Player One got a lot of hype. One got a lot of hype among aficionados uh, because it was basically Alan Silvestri trying to go back in time and write a score from 1987. I haven't had a chance to listen to that yet. The main theme is pretty good. The main theme is fun and it's used a bunch of times in some different ways, like 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 you talk about all the time. Plus, there's a lot of Back to the Future like little bits thrown in there because that's just the nature of the movie. There aren't random bits of non-Sylvestri scores tossed in. It's, I think, just Back to the Future and then his own original new music. But, you know, it was a perfectly entertaining listen, which is about all I have to say about that. (laughs) Do you want to talk about the songs that got nominated? No. On that note, thank you, Scott, for coming with me on this journey. I know it's been hard for you. It's been a harrowing one. Uh, Thank you, listeners, for being with us. Scott, where can people find you on the internet? I was about to say, we didn't cover the story that I put in the notes. Man, I really need to start reading your notes, too. Well, I'm glad we have this whole document of notes of what to do in the show so that we can be coordinated and synced and everything, and you don't bother reading it. I am number one podcaster. There was a story last week or the week before, I don't know how old it is by the time this gets posted, but apparently there was a campaign on the social medias to create the new most liked Instagram photo. It was a photo of a brown egg, and it got like 50 million likes and became the most liked photo in the history of Instagram. A brown egg on a plain white table is the pinnacle of social media fame. And this is the world that you people have dragged me into at myspace.com slash spectacularscott. This morass of social media is what I apparently am now a part of. In your space. (laughs) In my space. Well, if you would like to try to make a picture of my cat, the most liked photo on Instagram, you can find me at Glennybun. Uh, you can also find me at Glennybun on the Twitter and the Tumblr, although Tumblr's pretty much dying and Twitter is not good for my mental health. <laughs> so, it's a dark time for social media, really. But you can find me if you want. You're smart, you're with it, you know how to do things. And so, we will be seeing you in the future. Is that a hint that our next episode is probably going to be about Star Trek? Aren't they usually?
that's it. I think we did a podcast.